Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 1 as we're starting a new book of the Bible this weekend. 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you're new to the scriptures, it's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. It's on page 191. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, as we start a new book of the Bible, we're excited. Lord, First and Second Samuel is so powerful as we read of Samuel and Saul and David. And God, our lives are going forward. It's a story that you're writing. Pray that you would speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would take your truth, plant it deep in our hearts, and bring transformation. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going to be talking about going from despair to dedication. We're going to be looking at Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and how she was in a very difficult situation, brought that despair to the Lord, and ends in a place of worship. I think there's going to be a lot for us as we go through this chapter. If you're taking notes, there's three words I'd like for you to write down to think about with me, and the first is dysfunction. We're going to be looking at dysfunction, then despair, then finally, dedication. But before we get into this chapter, let's do a little bit of background on the book of First and Second Samuel because we will be in it for a while. This is gonna be a long study as we go through these two books, maybe a year, maybe a year and a half. You never know. God may come back before we finish First and Second Samuel. I saw a few of you look up like, really? A year? year and a half. These are large books, First and, and Second Samuel. In Hebrew, as they were written in Hebrew and translated into English, it's one book. So originally it was one book. We've divided it into two books. So keep that in mind. It really reads as one book. Historically, where it fits for the children of Israel is it's the time after the judges before the kings. If you remember, we studied through the book of Judges Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. It's a very dark time spiritually. And Samuel comes on the scene and he actually is the last judge. He's a judge and he's also a prophet. And he's going to anoint the first king Saul and the second king David. There's three main characters uh, in this book. We have Samuel, we have Saul, and we have David. And it spans over a 150 year period. And as you're going through the Old Testament, it all points to Christ. It's a message leading up to Christ. We have the law and people say, well, if I just had rules, then I wouldn't need a savior. I wouldn't need God to send his son. So God gives us the law to show us, well, we fell short of the law. We need a savior. Well, I could just do what's right in my own eyes. I don't need a savior. I could govern myself. So God has a period of time where that was the mantra. And we see how that worked out. Another idea is, well, if we just had good leadership, if we just had the right king, then we wouldn't need God to send his son. So there's a period of the kings where God shows us we need the king of kings. So it all leads up to Jesus Christ. I've titled this series through these two books called Kings and Sons because there's a, a real theme there of fathers and sons, kings and sons. I was reading through First and Second Samuel devotionally and it really hit me. Every character in First and Second Samuel, from my perspective, involves a father and a son. Even from the very beginning, we're going to find Elkanah and Samuel, which is a father and a son. We have Eli with his two sons, Hophniah and Phinehas. It's father and son. Then it moves to Saul and his son, Jonathan. Then it moves to David and his sons. So it's really a story of kings and sons. 
If you've never gone through First and Second Samuel, I think you're going to be in for a real treat. And if it's been a while since you've studied these books, they're powerful stories, wonderful life lessons for us. So let's begin in chapter 1 as we look at the life of Hannah. Now there was a certain man of Rephathaim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zumph, an Ephraimite. We kind of get lost in the son of, don't we? We don't give a lot of credibility or importance on our genealogy, where we've come from. For me personally, my last name's Cartier. It's a good French name, and we can trace it all the way to North Dakota. (laughs) Isn't that awesome, you know? Everybody asks me, are you French? And I don't know, you know, I know that we're from North Dakota, but I did in school always claim that we were related to Jacques Cartier, even though I couldn't prove it. I can trace my lineage on my dad's side to my grandpa. It goes pretty far, you know. I'm sure somebody in the family knows more history than I do, but, but I, I, I don't know. We don't really put a lot of value on that. But this is a good reminder. This is four generations that are listed for us in scripture. No words are wasted. God put this for an ongoing message and it is to show that your genealogy is important in the sense of where you've come from. You're leaving a legacy. You're passing things on to others. Elkanah, what's his situation? What's his life like? Verse two, and he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other was Paniah. Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. So here's our first word of focus. It's dysfunction. Can you say dysfunction with me? Why is this dysfunctional? Do you know? Two wives. Two wives, one man, doesn't ever work out well. Scripture never comes out with a command in the Old Testament and says, thou shalt not have two wives, but it's a clear message that God gives, starting with creation. When God created Adam, he created Eve. He gave one wife to one man. Every time polygamy is practiced, in the Old Testament, it never goes well. We never find an environment that's life-giving to a family. Out of this dysfunction, God is going to work redemption. He's going to go from a place of dysfunction to dedication. I think it's kind of humorous because I've never known of a woman in all of history that's wanted to practice polygamy with multiple husbands. You never find a lady going, yeah, I want three of them. That would be awesome, right? (laughs) All you ladies are going like, one's enough. That's absolutely enough for me to have one husband. It's always the guys that are willing to try having two or more wives. It doesn't go well in this situation. One of the reasons why is Hannah has no children. She's barren and Paniah is able to have children. Hannah's name means favored, means gracious, one who's received grace. Paniah, her name means Rudy, the stone, and she lived up to her name. She's stone cold, rock hard, and she turns out to be no gem. We'll find out with her character as we go forward. Verse three, this man went up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Elkanah is not perfect, but he shows us a great example in making worship our priority in his family. Yearly, he'd pack up his family. They would travel to Shiloh. The temple isn't built yet. Temple doesn't come on the scene till Solomon. 
The temple would be in Jerusalem. So they come to the tabernacle to Shiloh where they're going to offer sacrifices to the Lord. I don't think this is the only time they worshiped as a family. But it does show us the priority of worship in their lives. God does great work when dysfunctional families come into his house. Amen? And what we're going to find is this dysfunction that's taking place and this despair taking place. As Hannah gives that to the Lord, then God begins to work in that current situation. Now bear with me in this, but I believe that every family is dysfunctional. Maybe you haven't come to that conclusion yet, and I don't mean to offend you, but your family is made up of sinners, and my family is made up of sinners, of which I am the chief of our family. (laughs) And so when you get a bunch of sinners together in the context of family, it gets dysfunctional to a great degree. You don't realize that your family is dysfunctional a lot of times until you get married, because you just think it's normal. This is what every family does. This is what my family does. And then your wife or your husband comes into the picture and goes, your family is messed up. (laughs) Like, what do you mean? It's not messed up. This is normal. And they're saying, no, no, it's not normal. This is weird. This is dysfunctional. And then you start defending the dysfunction, right? You're like, hey, back off. Don't talk about my family like that, right? So there's hope for us in the midst of the struggles that we have as families. A lot of times we feel alienated because of the struggles in our families. We think, well, our family's the only one that's having struggle. Our family's the only family that's having dysfunction. I can't come to the house of God because I got in an argument with my spouse. I can't come to the, the house of God because my spouse divorced me. I didn't want the divorce, but they initiated the divorce. We're having a terrible time with our kids, so we can't come to to the house of God. And those are the lies of the enemy. God does great work when we come to his house. And Elkanah, even though there's tension inside of his family, he says, we're going to come and worship. We're going to be at the tabernacle. And God honors that, and he begins to work, and he begins to move. So verse 4, and whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Paniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. Offering in the tabernacle would get a double portion Hannah would receive. Even though God had closed her womb, she had the love of her husband. And this is part of the problem of polygamy. This is part of the problem anytime we get out of God's design, one man with one woman, is Jesus put it this way, you can't have two masters. You'll love one and you'll and you'll hate another. You can't love two wives equally. And so that's where Elkanah finds himself, is he's loving Hannah more than Paniah, and it creates great tension. Hannah is experiencing great pain because she's not able to have kids. Her womb has been closed by the Lord. We look at verse six, and her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. For women to not be able to have kids is extremely difficult. I know some of you ladies are going through that. Maybe your circumstance is that God hasn't allowed you to get married. Maybe you are married and you haven't been able to have kids and you desire to to have kids. It's one of the deepest pains that I've seen people go through is barrenness and the inability to have kids. Words can't really express it. So we know that women go through this throughout all of time But also Hannah is going through the cultural understanding that the rabbis taught that if a woman couldn't have kids, that she was cursed by God. 
So not only did she have that personal challenge of I desire kids and I can't have kids, but then culturally is this idea that was being placed on her, you've done something wrong. This is God's judgment upon your life. And that's not true at all. You know, God allows different things in our lives and tests us and tries us, but it's not because of sin always in our lives. And it wasn't the case for Hannah. Hannah wasn't in sin. This was a trial that the Lord was allowing in her life. And you can see the kind of pain that she's going through personally and then the pain that she's going through with Paniah. Paniah is bullying her, ridiculing her. Paniah goes for the greatest source of pain in her life. Don't you love people like that? They just wait to see what you're insecure about or what's kind of broken in your life or where the deep point of pain is. And then once they find it, it's like the screwdriver and the screw on. They're just going to turn that point right there and they're going to get you. And that's what Paniah would do every day to Hannah. So we see this dysfunction that's happening inside of Elkanah's home. Verse 7, so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. So it would escalate when they came to the tabernacle because Hannah's got the double portion. Paniah has the kids. Paniah's ridiculing Hannah so bad that she's just weeping. Her heart's broken. She can't take it anymore. She stopped eating. Now verse eight, prepare yourself, is one of the most boneheaded statements in all of the scripture from a husband. You know, this is a classic statement by a husband. I mean, can you picture Hannah? She's getting bullied by Paniah. She's crying, she's weeping, and then here comes Elkanah, her husband, the great comforter, and he said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than 10 sons? No, you're absolutely not better to me than 10 sons, right? He's so prideful and he's so arrogant. He's like, hey, why are you crying? There's no need to cry. You got me, babe. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm here for you. <laughs> How many times as we as husbands don't understand the pain that our wives are going through? It's there. It's clear. There's things that are happening in the home that are making things difficult. There's the Paniah issue, if you, if you would. There, there's barrenness in some aspect of life. The, the pain is clear, but we miss it as husbands. Elkanah's response is the exact opposite of 1 Peter 3, 7. This is what God says to husbands. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Dwell with your wife in understanding. Ladies, God is not saying that women are weaker. I think of it as this way. There's a coffee mug and there's fine china. Two different roles that have been created. Both have value. And men were made as coffee mugs. Ladies, you're made as fine china. And God says, honor your wife. Seek to understand her. So guys, we should know what's going on in our wives' lives. All the ladies are nodding their head. The joys, the sorrows, the heartbreak. To be able to listen, to seek to understand. If you want to be challenged as a husband, start praying that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you could dwell with your wife in understanding that you could understand her. And wives, as you're saying amen and as you're shaking your head, let me speak to you a little bit as well. 
is it's not fair for you to not clearly communicate to your husband. Sometimes wives and women will say, you know, if you really loved me, you'd just know. <laughs> no, I'm not going to just know. <laughs> you got to tell me. You got to say it. I'm not going to say it because if you were really paying attention, you, you'd figure this out. I, I can't figure this out. So husbands, we need to try to understand that we need to be in that place of listening and then wives to be in that place of communicate, to share it. This is what I'm going through. This is the heartbreak that I'm feeling. Now, Hannah's response to her insensitive husband is very admirable. And look at verse nine. So Hannah arose after they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now, Eli the priest was sitting at the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. This would have been an easy time for Hannah to lash out in anger towards Elkanah. Man, you're so insensitive. You don't understand what I'm going through. You're not better to me than than 10 sons. But instead, she goes to the Lord. She goes to the Lord. And this is point number two, dysfunction, then despair. Where are you gonna go with your despair? Are you gonna lash out? going to get angry, going to get angry at the family, or are you going to go to the Lord with that brokenness and that despair? I think some of the most deep pain that we experience in life comes in the context of family. If there is wounds between a husband and a wife, pain between parents and children, you don't have to be married to experience pain inside of your family. It may be a broken relationship with your parents or one of your siblings, or rejection by your grandparents, neglect. When you feel these things inside of your family, it brings us to a deep level of pain. If you have problems with a coworker, it's hard, but you leave at the end of the day. You don't go home with that person. Hannah's going to go home to this situation that, that she has. If it gets too bad, you can leave and find, find a new job, but that's not the case with, with family. And I know many of you are carrying deep pain in your personal family, in your family unit. And I want to encourage you with this story of Hannah, get into her life and go to God in the midst of that despair. Go to God in the midst of that pain. God, this this parent rejected me. This parent neglected me. And you know your pain and you know what you're going through. And go to the Lord with that bitterness of soul. And that's what we find with Hannah is she could have gone a lot of places. She could have got angry at a lot of people, but instead she went to the Lord and she poured out her heart before God. And that's what the Lord longs for. Let's look at her prayer in verse 11. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. It's respectful, O Lord of hosts, but it's also honest. I feel forgotten. Don't forget me, Lord. And in our prayers, and a lot of times in the midst of pain, it's difficult for us to be honest with God. God, I'm disappointed. This is how I hope this would turn out. I hope to have kids, but I haven't been able to have kids. My, my heart's broken. I, I trust you, but there's disappointment. God, why did you allow this to happen? God, I feel forgotten. And Hannah goes to that level where she asks that of the Lord. And this is her request. She says, if you give me a male child, I'll dedicate him to your service. He'll live at the tabernacle. He'll fulfill the the Nazarite vow. In verse 12, and it happened as she continued praying before the Lord 
that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. Seems to get bad to worse for Hannah. Follow the progression here. Paniah's taken her to task. She's watching Paniah have all these kids. Her husband has no clue what she's going through. She finally gets to the tabernacle for some prayer time. Then the priest is like, you drunkard. Thinks that she's drunk. When you're going through bitterness of soul and absolute desperation, you don't pray with your hands folded and your eyes closed. Because you're hurting. And in fact, in the scriptures, nowhere does it say, fold your hands and close your eyes when you pray. I'm convinced that it was probably a preschool Sunday school teacher that came up with the idea of fold your hands and close your eyes. Think about it. Right around the corner in the children's wing, there's a class of 20 or 30, three and four-year-olds. And it's time to pray. Their hands are going everywhere. Their eyes are going everywhere. The only opportunity that you have to get them to focus on the Lord is let's fold our hands and let's pray. I find myself doing that with my younger kids at the dinner table. Little Wyatt's so active and his hands are going everywhere. It's like, all right, Wyatt, it's time to pray. Let's fold our hands. Let's close our eyes. Let's, let's pray. But that's not the way it happens when we're broken. Agreed? It's just coming out of her heart. And her lips are moving, but she's not saying any words. It's desperation before God. And please note that prayer's from the heart. Church, prayer's from the heart. A lot of times when we pray, it's words in our head. It's like getting on the treadmill. We're so used to saying it that we're not even thinking about the words that we're saying anymore until we get to a place of trial, until we get to a place of difficulty, and all of a sudden trials have a really good way of getting our prayer to the heart level. And we start engaging our heart with the words that we're saying, but that's what God desires in prayer. He wants our heart to, to be given to the Lord, and Hannah's doing this, and then notice what Eli says to her. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. He misses it. He misses it completely. Ever been there? Ever made the wrong judgment? Your mind computes the information and you think, well, this person must be doing this. This must be where they're coming from and you make the wrong call. Oh, you're drunk. Put, put away your wine. I know that I've been there. That's the worst. The only thing you can do at that point is to apologize. I came with the, the wrong understanding and the wrong judgment. Proverbs 3 tells us this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. If we just factor in our own understanding, we're going to come away with a conclusion like Eli. We're going to get it wrong. Remember Job's friends when Job lost his children, lost most of his possessions, lost his health? Job's friends came to comfort. They did really good for the first 10 days. They wept with Job and they didn't say anything for 10 days. They should have continued in that mode. But when someone's going through trial, we want to try to fix it. We want to try to answer the questions. We want to try to figure out why this is happening and what was Job's friend's conclusion. Well, Job, it must be sin in your life. You must be in rebellion to God. If you just get right with God, the trials will stop but the exact opposite was happening. Job was being tested because of his righteousness, because he was 
walking with the Lord. We need to be careful that we don't have an Eli response, that we don't have a Job's friend response, that we spend more time listening and not relying upon our own understanding. Once again, Hannah responds in a wonderful way. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. She's respectful, but she's also truthful. It's easy to get angry and to want to fight when you're accused of something you haven't done. Or it's easy to just walk away, to fight or have the flight response. She doesn't do that. She's respectful. She addresses Eli as my Lord. She honors his position as the priest. But then she tells the truth. I'm not drunk. If I was in Hannah's shoes, it'd be really easy just to walk away. She's already really discouraged. So difficult to even get to this place. Now the priest thinks she's drunk. I'll just go home. Forget this. This isn't even worth trying to explain it. But she gives a respectful and truthful answer. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I've spoken until now. Out of the abundance of complaint, out of the abundance of grief, she's coming before the Lord. What is it in your life? Maybe it's despair because of a family situation, but maybe your despair has nothing to do with a family situation. Are you crying out to to the Lord? Asking God will work in that. How about the despair that we see in our community? The things that we find happening in our streets and in our schools. Where we live, this is our home. This is Colorado Springs. Monument to Fountain. The west side out to to Peyton. All the hurt that's taking place. Are we going to the Lord for the despair that we see in our community? Asking that God would work, that he would bring about redemption. Verse 17, then Eli answered and said, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of of him. Eli must have heard from the Lord. God's gonna respond to your petition, Hannah. Do you think this is the first time that Hannah prayed about this issue of barrenness in her life? I don't think so. I think this is something that she had prayed about a lot and now it had started to overflow like a volcano, It, it erupted. And God chooses to answer prayer in his timing. Have you noticed that? And sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says wait. Hannah was in a holding position. She'd probably been praying for years and it wasn't until this point that God says, I've answered your prayer. Is there an area of barrenness in your life? Barrenness in your family? Barrenness in the things that God's called you to? Keep praying. God may simply be saying, wait, it's not my time yet. God had a perfect time for Samuel to be born. Verse 18, and she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So this woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. She's greatly comforted. Then they arose in the morning and worshiped before God and they returned and came to their house in Ramah and Elkanah knew his wife and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I've asked for him from the Lord. Samuel's name represents the testimony of his life. His name means asked of God or heard by God. He's an answer to prayer. That's the essence of his name, Samuel. Do you catch this? Do you get the scene of this? Dysfunction. Elkanah's family, two wives, not, not God's design. These wives 
They're not getting along. Paniah's ridiculing Hannah. Not great things happening from Elkanah to Hannah. Elkanah's extremely insensitive. But they're worshiping. But they're going to the house of God. Giving God an opportunity to work. One of the best things we can do for our families is we're going to be in God's house together. We're going to worship together. Husbands saying, you know what, my family, we're going to be in the house of God. If you're a single parent, we're going to be in the house of God. If you're not married, no kids, we're going to be in the house of God because God does a work in our dysfunction and our despair when we're in his, his house. But there's going to be a paniah, isn't there? There's going to be somebody ridiculing us all the way to the house of God, and his name's Satan, the accuser of the brethren. Hannah presses through all this. She cries out to God. God answers her prayer, and boom, here's Samuel. As we'll continue to study, Samuel becomes the messenger for God's people at this time. He becomes God's mouthpiece. He has the message of God. He hears God's word and declares it to God's people at this dark spiritual time in history. We bring our despair to God and God brings about redemption. Samuel's life is a testimony of redemption. So the rest of this chapter, 21 to 28, we move to dedication or to worship. It goes from dysfunction, despair, to dedication. Now the man Elkanah and all of his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice in his vow. It was time to go to Shiloh. But Hannah didn't go up, for she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. Hannah follows through with her vow. She says, Samuel's not ready to go yet, but when he's weaned, I'm going to take him to the tabernacle and he's going to live at the tabernacle. How many people in times of despair have made a commitment to God that they haven't followed through with? Said, God, if you get me out of this jam, I'll serve you. God does. And then they're not walking with the Lord. They're not serving the Lord. They didn't follow through with the dedication. This is an important piece, I think, is when we're at the place of dysfunction and we're at the place of despair, we call out to God. Many times he answers, but we don't move to a place of worship. The deliverance, the gift of Samuel, if you would, should lead us to a place of dedication, should lead us to a place of worship like we see in Hannah's life. She follows through with the worship. She follows through with the dedication. Must have been very difficult for her. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Most Bible teachers and commentaries believe that Samuel would have been about age three when he went to live at the tabernacle. That was the normal age to wean children at the time. Eli inherits a toddler. <laughs> he gets a toddler in the tabernacle in the house of God. Verse 24, now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with the three bowls, one ephah of flour, one skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. This is monumental. This is quite a processional. Three bowls, a skin of wine, an ephah of flour, and Samuel, the three-year-old, traveling to Shiloh. This is a great monetary gift that is being given Three bulls to be sacrificed. Even if they're a wealthy family, this has great monetary value. But the monetary value of the bulls has nothing compared 
to the physical value of her son, Samuel? What is she thinking through as she's making this journey to to Shiloh? God's goodness, no doubt. She's got this little baby boy that she spent three years with. But then the difficulty of surrendering him to live at the tabernacle. She would see him yearly when she would come, but she wouldn't have that daily interaction with her son. Verse 25, then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And he said, and she said, oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I'm the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. This is the child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition which I've asked of him. I think Hannah probably pointed to the location that she was at in the courtyard of the tabernacle. Said, remember, I was praying over there. And Eli's like, oh yeah, that was the time that I thought you were drunk. You know, that was the time that I said, oh, what I should have never said. We've all, we all have a few of those that we'll remember till we go home and be buried. God's answered my prayer. And here I am to fulfill my commitment my dedication, dedicating Samuel unto the Lord. God has granted me my petition, which I have asked of him. Prayer is a bit of a mystery. It's hard to understand, and this is why. God is sovereign. He does what he wants, what he wills, what he pleases. But also, God instructs us and invites us and commands us to pray. So how do those two go together? God has a plan. He's sovereign. He does what he wills but he works through the prayers of his people? I don't know. I can't reconcile the two. But if we walk away with the theology of prayer, it doesn't matter if I pray, we've got the wrong theology, agreed? Because God invites us into prayer. He invites us to bring our despair into his presence and give an opportunity for him to work. I don't think this chapter would have gone the same way if Hannah wouldn't have prayed if she wouldn't have come to the Lord and asked God to work in in the midst of this difficult situation. I'm sure God moved her to prayer. God was involved in that, but Hannah was obedient to bring it to the Lord. Prayer is important. We pray for God's will. We pray for his kingdom to come. God, I don't know what your will is in this situation, in the midst of this despair, but I'm giving it over to you. And the times that we live and the difficulties that we face and the darkness of our day We need to be in a posture and position of prayer and crying out to the Lord. Verse 28, therefore, as I have lent him to the Lord, as long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshiped the Lord there. The word lent also means returned. Therefore, I've returned him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he will be returned to the Lord. So they worshiped there. Let me ask you this. The things that God has blessed you with, have you placed them in God's hands? Have you returned them unto him in worship? Have you come to this place of dedication, starting with what's most dear to us in our families? Have you put your families into God's hands? They don't belong to us. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. They're the Lord's. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, it says, for this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed For I know what I've believed and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. The safest place for our loved ones is to be in the hands of the Lord. Surrender them. It's a process. We need to continue to be reminded they're the Lord's. God created them. They're created in God's image. I'm putting them in God's hands. 
Maybe God has really gotten you out of a pickle, out of a jam, out of some tremendous dysfunction and despair. And it's resulted in a reliable vehicle. Is that vehicle in the hands of God? Has it become an object of idolatry or an object of worship? It's so easy for the blessings that God gives us for it to become idolatry. But instead, it can become dedication. It can become worship. God, this is your car. You've blessed me with it. I want to glorify you with it. God's blessed you with a home. He's blessed you with an apartment, a roof over your head. Are you holding on to it? I got to do everything possible to not lose this. Or is it in God's hands? God, I want to be responsible with it. I want to be a steward, but this is yours. See the difference? We go from that despair, we experience deliverance, then we go to dedication, we go to worship. God, this is yours. It belongs to you. It's not my house, not my car, not my family, not my ministry. Lord, it's yours. And Hannah gets to this place of surrender. Next week, we're going to look at Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. We're going to prepare to take communion together. Let me ask you a few questions of application is am I paralyzed in dysfunction and despair? Dysfunction and despair, especially inside the family, can paralyze us. But instead of being paralyzed, take it to the Lord. Husbands, are you dwelling with your wife in an understanding way? When was the last time you looked into her eyes, her countenance, to see how she's really doing? We can tell a lot by looking into the eyes of our wife to see their countenance. How about less Eli responses? Less coming up with a quick conclusion and going, oh, you must be drunk. But most importantly, to move from despair to dedication, to move from despair to worship, to bring our despair into the presence of God. And we're going to do that in communion. We're going to be served. Everyone's going to be served. And then when we're done, we'll partake together. But communion is a great opportunity to remember what Christ has done. We're moved by a woman who shares her son to the sacrifice in the temple, in the tabernacle, to be in God's service. But how much more so has the heavenly father sent his son, given his son to die for us? And we remember the sacrifice of Christ. And as we worship and as communion is being served, do what Hannah has done. Pray from your heart. When was the last time you've prayed from your heart? And bring your grief, bring your pain, bring your despair to the Lord and allow him to work. Let's pray together. Father, as we take communion, would you bless this time of communion? May our hearts be given to you. May you move in our midst and remind us of your love, the gift of your son. May you work in our pain and in our despair. May we be transparent and honest with you. God, you know the hearts that are here this morning, those that haven't surrendered to you. And as the gospel is shared, Lord, would you knock on hearts? Would you speak to lives and bring people to you?